You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What the hell are the Republicans doing? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here with Ezra Klein, who is back from vacation, uh, ready to pontificate on Wait, things. I was back from vacation last week, I think. Oh, no, I forgot about it. All right, I forget. Time has no meaning in the pandemic, but the way we know to live our lives is that we now have a vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, and um, she is... The opposite of a surprise pick. Uh, so we speculated about her a lot uh, already. Sometimes things happen and like they feel inevitable in retrospect. Uh, I I had a lot of doubts about Harris as a as the best option, even though she was clearly like up there in the rankings. Uh, but I will say, like when I saw them up on stage together, it felt very much. Not even necessarily like the pick I would have made personally in my like hot takey kind of mode, but like the like the correct and fitting pick like together, Biden and Harris represent the modern Democratic Party well in a way that neither of them did alone, right? It's like truly like a like a balanced ticket in that sense, I think, that like brings people in and that the non-journalists and stuff who I know in my life uh, seemed really happy about this outcome and like, here we go, you know, like, let's beat Trump. So I have a bunch of thoughts on the pick. And I want to start with its relationship to the arc of recent Democratic candidate picks. So if you go back um, over the past couple of Democratic presidential nominees, so Bill Clinton in 1992 picks Al Gore, a white Southerner meant to emphasize that Bill Clinton is also a moderate white Southerner. Al Gore picks Joe Lieberman, known for being one of Bill Clinton's toughest critics in the party. So the arguably one of the most conservative senators who later uh, gets primaried out of the Democratic Party uh, officially in Connecticut. In 2004, John Kerry picks John Edwards, a white Southerner who at that point, he's beginning to explore some of the populist messaging. But at that point, he's a moderate senator. His voting record is way to John Kerry's right in the Senate. In 2008, Barack Obama picks Joe Biden, old white guy, well to his right in the party, uh, who had been like sort of pro-Iraq war while Barack Obama like ran an anti-war candidacy. In 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton picks Tim Kaine, a moderate white guy Southerner. I, I bring this up to say that in the recent past, every single Democratic nominee has picked a vice president to their right, a vice president whom the message of that vice presidential pick was, if you don't feel great about the Democratic Party on ideology or identity grounds, maybe you're not totally ready for a woman or a black guy, um, hey, look at my vice president. <laughs> and Joe Biden breaks with tradition here. 
I want to talk a bit about the way Kamala Harris gets understood ideologically. But on every objective level, Kamala Harris is way to Joe Biden's left. Um, her policies are to his left. She was, according to DW Nominate, the second most liberal senator, which like I wouldn't take quite that seriously, but let's call her in the top five most liberal senators. Joe Biden, uh, throughout his entire career in the Senate, was like right in the middle. His final uh, Senate term, I think he was the 26th most liberal senator. And so like Joe Biden is making a pick here, fitting some of what Joe Biden has done since the primary ended, the Bernie Biden task forces, which moved his agenda to the left. The transition team, which, as you've noted, Matt, is stalked with um, a, a former senior economic advisor to Elizabeth Warren, Pramila Jayapal's chief of staff. Like Joe Biden has been on personnel and policy grounds, and it, and it continues here with Harris, moving to the left after winning the primary, which is quite unusual for, for a national candidate where the cliche is they run to the center after winning the primary. But Harris is to the left of Biden in a particular way, right? So she she represents California, which is a liberal state, and she's just like newer to national politics, right? Um, so Biden Biden left the Senate in 2007, was his last year as a senator. Harris's first year was 2017. And like all of American politics was very sort of different by then, where I think like Harris, people will say that she's a moderate, which I think is not that well grounded in anything in particular. I mean, no matter how literally you want to take DW nominate scores, she doesn't have a lot of like noteworthy moderate policy views. What she is, though, is somebody who the main donors to the Democratic Party like. And contrary to what some like leftists think, one reason the main donors to the Democratic Party like Kamala Harris is that the main donors to the Democratic Party are pretty left wing. Like, that's why yes. they're Democratic Party donors. Um, particularly and like, on, on, on race and gender issues where Harris is also particularly left wing. Right. But I mean, like genuinely on everything like people there's there's a good survey of this I, I i wrote about it one time and it's what's true is that the big money donors are not as left-wing as the small money donors but they are way more left-wing than the average person who votes for the democratic party uh to say nothing of the average american so when people talk there is there is a very intense struggle inside the ranks of the democratic party between folks like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and the squad and people in their orbit who were sort of like the the small donor people and people like Harris who's very much a big donor person but the small donor people will often mischaracterize the Harris type people as reflecting like a right wing of the party when like those donors are very left wing. Like that's why they give that much money. Now, there are, of course, transactional donors, right? Uh, the telecom companies, the pharmaceutical companies, all those players, like they have lobbyists, they do parties on K Street. Um, you know, th that stuff exists. But like when people say that the Democratic Party donor class is enthusiastic about Harris, which they are, that's not because she's on the rightward flank of the party. It's because donors are themselves left wing. But it does mean a difference, right? You, you went through all these picks, and 
Frankly, even in retrospect, it's a little hard to understand what was happening with Tim Kaine. But most of them are clear efforts by the nominee to assuage voters' doubts, right? Like elements of the mass public uh, are supposed to be appeased by John Edwards or Joe Lieberman or someone like that, right? Like Lieberman, the clearest example. Bill Clinton's approval ratings were high, but the message of the Lieberman pick was that like Al Gore gets it, that there was like something skeevy about some of Clinton's conduct. And I don't know if it really worked for him, but but you see what he was trying to get at. Harris is trying to reassure people who are the base of the Democratic Party, right? Like the people who went to the Women's March, the people who cut checks to the DCCC, like that Joe Biden is old, but that like he gets it. Not that he gets what the median voter cares about, but that he gets what the median Democrat cares about because he himself is a pick. It was like Democrats were compromising with themselves on Biden to like try to beat Trump. But Biden, by picking Harris, is reassuring everyone that like the social and demographic and generational transformation of the United States will continue apace, even though this like old white guy who does gaffes all the time is going to be the president. Yeah, there's a lot there, and I, I want to go through some of it. And in particular, I want to talk about the way Harris is understood ideologically, because I've found this very puzzling when I try to match it to, to her actual record. And, and and I think there's something really interesting here. So as I mentioned, DW nominate, and there are a number of ways of measuring congressional ideology, and Harris ends up on the leftmost edge of all of them. But basically, what you're doing is you're looking at how members of the Senate vote and what coalitions they vote in, and using that to create a dimensional space in which you can see where everybody falls. And when you do that, like Harris is like number two behind Warren. Now, it's obviously the case that Bernie Sanders is to Kamala Harris's left. And I think the reason that's happening is that coalitionally, Bernie, by being uh, actually somewhat more ideological than Harris is, tends to make somewhat more odd bedfellows coalitions. So he will occasionally have like an audit the Fed idea that Rand Paul will be on. And like Kamala Harris is a, like much more of a down the line, like liberal Democrat. Like Bernie Sanders is a leftist. Harris is a liberal. Like she's a very liberal Democrat. And so I, I wouldn't really take it as like she's to his left, but she is way to the left of basically every Democrat in the Senate. So she is way to Tammy Duckworth's left. Like that is not in doubt. To Michael Bennett's left. That is not in doubt. To Chris Murphy's left. To Brian Schatz's left. Like she's like to the left of all these people in terms of how she votes. And yet when she got picked, the New York Times described her as a pragmatic moderate. Like if you like just rewind the clock a couple of years and the Democratic presidential candidate picks a black Indian American woman with one of the few most liberal voting records in the Senate, like there's no way the Times is describing that as like the safe, pragmatic, moderate pick. And so like part of this is American politics is changing. And and also like part of this is people judge other people's ideology by their enemies. And the left, like the actual left, really dislikes. Kamala Harris, right? There's this whole like Kamala is a cop thing that that, that that goes around Twitter. There's like always a lot of fury over the way she played healthcare. I think some of it fair and some of it unfair. But because she actually angers the left and like ends up in tension with them in funny ways, the fact that her voting record is like way more liberal than say Whitmer's voting record as a as a Michigan governor, her, her governance record, or Tammy Duckworth. I actually think in a funny way Harris gets more static from the left than people well to her right would have simply by being like in a weird kind of conversation with them. But 
the other thing here is I think we we tend to measure ideology on the single axis, right? Like all the way on the right of the libertarians and all the way on the left of the socialists. And then like everybody gets put somewhere in between there. But I actually think that when we tend to talk about this, we often implicitly have this other axis. I tend to think of it as temperament, but you can call it like system orientation. And like at the top of it, it's how you relate to politics and the party and how you want to change things. And like, I always think of it as going like, like revolutionary, like reformist, like moderate, uh, conservative reactionary. And the thing is that Harris is quite liberal, but she's also like very conventional in her approach to politics. And she has talked about this very explicitly, talked about making a decision that she's going to try to change things very much from the inside. Like Joe Biden, she works with the Democratic Party establishment. Unlike, say, uh, Bernie Sanders or AOC, or even to some degree Elizabeth Warren, she doesn't evince a lot of uh, discomfort with the Democratic Party as an institution. And oftentimes, when like given a choice between like blowing things up a little bit more, say in the settlement she she made with the banks, which she sees as like a really good settlement, and people on the left like wanted her to prosecute bankers, Harris was to the left of many attorneys general on that settlement, um, and, and the way she approached that, but way to the right of where uh, many people on the on the left would have liked to see all kinds of attorneys general go. Um, that's true, also to some degree in her record as a prosecutor, she is like a liberal prosecutor by the standards of that time, but like a prosecutor operating within like the prosecutorial uh, conventional wisdom of that moment too. And so there's like a, a, an interesting way in which I think that Harris is quite liberal ideologically. You give her a bill, to, a bill and she will vote on it, yes, if it is a liberal bill, and you look at what she proposes and it tends to be well to the left of the center of her own party. But in terms of her approach to politics, like if you're somebody who wants somebody who like doesn't like the Democratic Party very much, doesn't like its donors class doesn't like feel comfortable in what it has come to represent like Harris is not that person like she's very much like wants to be a party leader as Joe Biden wants to be a party leader and in that way they're very simpatico she might be to his left in terms of her views but like she's actually quite similar to him in terms of her political approach which is coalitional pro system pro party what I think is one of the big things that I think this coverage has gotten wrong is that I've read several different articles that sort of marvel, like, who would have thought that, you know, a time would come when a half black, half Indian woman from California with a liberal voting record would be seen as the safe choice for vice president. Um, and I agree that it's surprising that people see it that way. But like what's surprising isn't that Harris became the safe choice. What's surprising is that I think she's a quite electorally risky choice and that Democrats have gotten a little bit blinded to those risks by some of the uh, demographic bubbling that college-educated city-dwelling professionals live in, right? That like one thing we kept seeing happen during the primary is just that the electorate is a lot older and a lot more working class than young college graduates on the internet believe. And like that's why Biden is the nominee. And Harris like Elizabeth Warren, I think, you know, is very appealing to a certain set of people, right? It's clear that really impressively smart, successful women, women lawyers often, have a lot of appeal to like one group of people who's influential inside the Democratic Party base. And Harris is less ideologically hard-edged than Warren, and so has more friends on Wall Street, more friends in Silicon Valley who like her. And so it plays in the media as like, all right, like this is a safe choice. This is a consensus choice. Uh, but 
she's also, as you said, as we're like, she is a person with a with a pro system orientation. Harris is someone who believes in the institutions of America, and she she exudes that right, and like has this sort of like you know like upbeat immigrant life story, and and it's it's all cool, and and it's me too, like I am in that same bubble. But if you think about the groups of voters who are at the margin for Democrats, right? Whether that is non-church-going, non-college white people uh, in, in the North, right? Those are the like Obama-Trump voters, or it is younger uh, Hispanic men who have been drifting away from the Democratic Party. These are people with like low social trust, low levels of like pro-system orientation. It's why someone like Bernie Sanders can take people by surprise. It's why something uh, zany sounding like police abolition can gain support with a lot of younger people of, of all races. Like there is, there are many people in the United States who do not feel that the system works not just like who feel that Donald Trump is bad but who feel that the system is is broken and that institutions don't speak for them and Harris does not really reach any of those kinds of subcategories of people and i'm not sure that there was a great choice available who who did reach them which is one reason to to pick her ultimately cuz you know you, you can't beat something with nothing but it's a big risk you know like trump has messed things up enough that i think it's going to be hard for him to secure reelection but democrats like issue as a political party is that they have stopped being seen as having a lot of uh, appeal to people who feel like marginalized by the culture and by by mainstream institutions and Biden and Sanders in their different ways I think both struck some of that chord during the Democratic primary by being like weird and unfashionable and Harris is very much like a like a move back to the the center of gravity of Democratic Party politics. But I think that that's like a risky place for the party to to be because it doesn't there's not enough people like that to win by default. I think I think that with my like Matt ring on, I see what you're saying. But I, I uh, on another level, like I think literally I disagree. So l- let me try to cut two things apart here. One yeah. is that. When you put Joe Biden on the ticket, you're not going to be very appealing to the anti-system people. Like, right. I, I really disagree with you that Joe Biden represents. I think what you're saying is that there is a less ideological, less liberal, less woke, older world of voters out there who have been like left behind by a Democratic Party that has gotten too into its engaged and polarized base. And Biden is good at speaking to those people. But like, that's like, a 72-year-old in Florida who's voted Democratic but like doesn't like watches some Fox News and doesn't like the squad. Mm-hmm. That's not, I think, somebody who's actually marginalized in the system and like wants to see it blowing up. Like Joe Biden is like, he's like the antithesis. He's antimatter to those people. Like he believes in the system more than anybody who has ever been in the American political system before. And so like he was never going to have a vice president who would overwhelm like what he represented, which is a guy who has been at the center of American politics just literally as long as anybody who is alive can remember. And so I don't think Harris is risky from that perspective. But what Biden is doing with the Harris pick is if you thought what he was going to do was try to provide a safe harbor, 
to these, like, let's just call, call it what it is, right? Like, voters resentful of the way race and gender power is changing, but who also don't really like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He could have picked somebody who would have been more of that kind of pick. And he didn't. He picked um, Kamala Harris. He's like explicitly saying to those people, like, this is still not your party. This is actually the party of Barack Obama, still not really the party of Joe Biden. Or at the very least, what the party of Joe Biden is now is in the lineage of the party of Barack Obama, not what Joe Biden represented 15 or 20 years ago. And so Harris, in that way, is a transitional pick and is continuing to make clear what the party is. Joe Biden is saying pretty clearly, like, I don't represent its future. Kamala Harris represents its future. And so if you don't like that future, you're probably not going to be into this ticket. Um, and so that does make her a different kind of choice. When I was seeing some of like the left backlash to the Harris pick, and there was like somebody on Twitter who said, like, I have heard that it was always between Warren and Harris. And, you know, it's just recently, no. Initially, like the the front runners, from all of my reporting on this, Klobuchar was way ahead for a long time. Like she endorsed Biden when he needed it. They believe she won him Minnesota and she like backed up his political tendencies perfectly. Um, She just like is like him in politics. And it was after Minnesota and some other things that that she obviously fell fell down in the rankings and then dropped out because it wasn't it wasn't going to work out. Um, And so after that, it was Harris. But if you're thinking about what the Democratic Party is going to look like in the future and the fact that Joe Biden is a nominee this year just tells you that who is vice president actually really matters for who becomes presidential uh, candidate material or presidential nominee material um, in subsequent elections. Harris, both like her ideological thinking and the kind of party she represents is just well to the left of what Klobuchar represents. It's true in terms of the state Harris um, represents, right? California versus Minnesota. It's true in terms of her political style. And so there there are other people on the list. But in as far as I can tell, in terms of the candidates who were really, really seriously considered throughout this, I think Gretchen Whitmer was actually like quite seriously considered at times. Harris was probably the, I don't want to say the leftmost, I want to say actually the most liberal. I think that that's largely in line with with my sort of understanding of it. But I think that the the Klobuchar example, right, because there there are reasons why she fell out. But the fact that Biden's initial instinct was to go in that direction and then wound up with, with Harris instead, to me, I think that like underscores what the what the risk is exactly, you know, because it's easy to sort of caricature more culturally conservative people. But like Amy Klobuchar is a woman. Gretchen Whitmer is a woman. Um, Barack Obama is African-American, you know. But all of those people, I think, try very hard in their politics to throw a bone of reassurance to people who have some level of discomfort with levels of change, right? often like a deliberately folksy manner, you know, to to say nothing of anything else. And Harris is not like that. You know what I mean? Like she is a more uncompromising face of cultural and social change, right? Than the one Biden was initially going for, which like Klobuchar, right? Is she's younger than Biden. She's of the opposite gender as Biden, but is very much in continuity with the theory of politics that Joe Biden articulated in the primary, which was like, 
you got to try to be moderate. You got to try to get working class white people in the Midwest to vote for you. And like, who better to do that than somebody like Whitmer or Klobuchar, who just like wins elections in the Midwest, right? Harris, you know, she's from California, right? Like, she doesn't get swing voters to vote for her. She had a very tough race in 2010, her first race for attorney general, uh, because she had to run against the uh, district attorney from LA County, uh, where a ton of people live. He was a moderate Republican. He was very well liked. 2010 was a terrible year for Democrats. So it was it was a hard election. But the nature of an election like that in a state like California is you win by reminding everybody that they've got to come home. That it's like, you might have heard good things about this L.A. guy, like he's a different kind of Republican, but like, no, you you want to be with me, right? And and she she did it. It, it worked. It was good politics. She's smart. She, she knows what she's doing. But it it underscores that she's never run a race like a Whitmer race or a Klobuchar race or Biden. I mean, it was like the 70s when Delaware was a swing state and Biden won some tough races. But like, that's a different kind of politics, right? Like getting people who often vote Republican to vote Democratic instead is just like not something that's been in her career necessarily. And you're not going to like lose the election over Kamala Harris because she's a very qualified, competent person. But it's a, I think the Democratic Party sometimes has an impulse toward this kind of, uh, triumphalism about social and cultural politics. And the Harris pick, to me, uh, speaks to that, to a desire to indulge that kind of triumphalism. And it's an instinct that I think Democrats are going to have to keep in check if they don't always have like depression-level unemployment to run against. I really think that's a weird way to frame this pick. The Democratic Party is not based on older white men. And so I think it is not a triumphalism for Joe Biden to pick a non-white woman who, as we were both saying, like plays a very establishment approach to politics. Like, yes, she's from a more liberal state, like tr- totally true. But like part of the static from the left is she's not a leftist either. I don't know. I, I take what you're saying on some level. And this came up in our last discussion on Harris, where I think you just see her as a candidate who runs a much more primarily woke strategy than is the way I understand her. Like as well, a Well, I mean, I'm saying like looking at the looking at l- looking at the vote returns, she runs several points behind Jerry Brown in all of her elections. Mm-hmm. Well Jerry that- Brown is a, a really, really distinctive politician in California. We will see, but um and I think there's like interesting questions about when Harris, you know, tops a ticket if she does in the future. But you know, I think it was really important, actually, for Biden to represent the Democratic Party as it exists. It's something he's trying to do across a lot of dimensions. And so I think the question there becomes a, a little bit, would it have been more representative of a Democratic Party, particularly of a Democratic Party that is changing and becoming younger, more diverse, more liberal, to go with somebody who is simply like, who reflects Joe Biden's particular approach to politics so closely? I'm not saying Harris was the only choice here. In some ways, uh, like there were you know, like there are interesting choices I was surprised they didn't that also didn't get more more attention. But I don't think she's in any way a um like an indulgent. This isn't like like the left of the party was demanding Harris. And like it, it just like this is a choice that they thought of as very coalitional, that she actually a lot of parts of the party like her. Now, maybe it's like too much of a party focused choice. I buy that on some level, but I don't think it is not like a, a choice that is 
giving, I think, the parts of the party you're talking about, like everything they want in the world. Like Harris is, as Biden is, a very compromise-oriented candidate trying to hold together a coalition that is pretty vast. And like the things she's done in California and other places as well as do that. So my point is not that like she's going to win the election for Joe Biden or, or anything else, but I wouldn't. I, I think you're framing her as a little bit more out of the party or, or out of the mainstream here than is fair. Well, I mean, I guess I see her as very in the mainstream. Like that's the that's the issue to an extent. Like she is like the dead center of the Democratic Party. Whereas what you do to win elections is appeal to people who are on some margin or other of the party. So like Biden is on the like very much on the old side for a person. And so he maybe extends Democrats appeal uh, to old people more than a typical person kind of would be. Whereas Harris, I just think, doesn't extend in any possible direction. Uh, she's like a like a not the left, but like the base of the party. And maybe that's what you need. I mean, as you say, right, like Biden has been trying to put together a like full in all Democratic Party consensus. And it's definitely true that like Harris is the person the party wanted, right? Like all groups like like Labor thinks she's fine. All all kinds of groups like they like Kamala Harris and, and sort of that's that's how you get your pick. We just did this ranked choice poll with uh, Survey USA and Fair Vote um, of Democrats and independents, which allowed people to like also resort their choices as people dropped out for not getting a majority. And Harris came in on top of that poll. She like won yeah. easily. Notably, it's not close. I think, really. Like, so, you know, like pleasing the, it definitely gives the people what they want. Um, should we uh, take a break? Talk about Republicans? Yeah, talk about not giving the people what they want. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So over the past couple, like week or so, actually, I've been trying to answer this question I have, which is like, what the hell are the Republicans doing? Right now in politics, I feel like I cannot back out any kind of policy theory on the part of the White House or the Senate Republicans that in any way would lead to them like either solving the problems that everybody agrees are problems like coronavirus and the fact that the economy is in a state of mid like collapse or just win them the election, right? Like they, the Republican Party is facing down a terrible election. Donald Trump is down by 10 points. Like the, the Nate Silver forecast came out uh, the other day. And it had Biden at 71% to win. But as Nate said, like that's uncertainty because of how far away the election is. If the election were tomorrow, the forecast would say that he has a 93% chance of winning. And so 
like if you're a Republican, like I'm not saying that means Joe Biden will win, but if you're a Republican, it means you're in a bad position. Like you don't want those to be the numbers. It's like, what are they doing? So I've been going to like all these Hill Republicans and people who've worked on the Hill for Republicans and it's like asking this question, is there something I am missing? Is there like, what does Mitch, what would Mitch McConnell even want if there was no Nancy Pelosi to negotiate with? What would the White House want? Like, what is their theory that like, if you let Republicans do this, it's going to be better. And then like, you'd want to return them to office. And the answer I've gotten universally, and I want to be very clear, like I do not when I do this, talk to the people representing the three most semi-moderate Republicans. Like I try to talk to people like in the center of the Republican Party or even on the conservative end of it. And they've just universally said, there is no plan. There is total paralysis and confusion. The party is not holding together. The Senate leadership, McConnell and others, do not feel like they can even come forward with a plan effectively or a strategy because Donald Trump will just do the opposite thing the next day. So why even bother? Donald Trump's administration is split between this like very conservative wing that Mark Meadows is now leading as chief of staff and this more pragmatic wing um, of, of Steve Mnuchin, who would just like cut a deal with Nancy Pelosi in two hours if you let him do it. And like, so they have no coherence. And so the Republican Party at this point, at its Senate wing and at its presidential wing, they don't have a theory of how to stop coronavirus, right? There is nowhere that you will find like a paper that they all agree on that says like, this is what we would do to get the virus under control if you just let us do it and Nancy Pelosi weren't blocking everything. And they don't really have this on the economy either. They like have a theory of like starting where Pelosi is and trying to get it down under a trillion dollars, or at least that's what a lot of the conservatives want. They all seem to think this bill is going to become TARP 2.0, where like after Donald Trump loses, if they vote for it, they'll get primaried out in 2022. I've heard this now a couple of times, but it's a crazy situation. Like the Republican Party has nothing even though they are in charge of, including the Supreme Court, three of the four relevant institutions in government that that actually have like day-to-day uh, uh, policy-setting power. And even though they are facing down the barrel of a terrible election because of their own governance failures, like that is how messed up the party is. Like even given all of that, even given like how much they currently stand to lose, they are not able to come up with any kind of substantive strategy that even lets their people say like we have a strategy to, to to beat this thing and get America back to work. It's a wild collapse of governing capabilities. I just so we're old now. And, you know, I think back to the 2008 election, right, where it it really seemed like, you know, the GOP was was rolling in ideologically exhausted to that race, you know, like. Bush had had some notions about compassionate conservatism, uh, but there was, what was it, John Giulio, you know, came out and he was like, these guys are Mayberry Machiavellis. Like, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have any real faith-based initiative. And the economy was collapsing and the war with Iraq was a disaster. And they got like, they got their asses kicked in that race. You know what I mean? Like Democrats had 60 Senate seats after that election. Um, There were all kinds of Democratic governors. Like the GOP was a a mess. And it seemed like, man, like these guys really need to rethink something. Um, And David Frum wrote, I think, a good book at that time that was like, man, these guys really need to rethink something. Like they got to come up with something. And they didn't. And it took them one year 
I would say, to come back and start winning governor's races in New Jersey. Two years, they swept control of Congress, uh, governorship, state legislatures. No, no, they, they, they just got the House. Sure, yes, the House, uh, but tons of state legislatures, right? So then after the yes. 2010 census, mm-hmm. they were able to enact the gerrymanders. Uh, they didn't, it, it's not like, you know, then Obama won in 2012, Um Donald Trump came in, and Trump's ability to win that primary, it reflected that same ideological exhaustion. It's like there was no, like, mainstream conservatives, like, institutionalists were like, oh, no, this Trump guy is terrible. But, like, they couldn't explain, like, what it was that establishment Republicans were doing. Like, even two GOP base voters. So, like, some guy from reality television who would just be more racist— uh, swept in and, and won, but it didn't. It didn't hold them back in any particularly practical way. And then I would say something like, "Well, fine, maybe for electoral purposes, like you don't need ideas that make sense or anybody who knows what they're doing. Uh, but you're going to come in. It's like it's going to be really hard to govern if you just have a bunch of." idiots and like shit posters running the country and i would say that view has been vindicated things are going very poorly for the united states of america but i feel like this is like sustainable in a weird way like there is just a good a good shot at a comeback so much of the electoral geography of the united states is biased toward republicans and you know most people are white and but wait, I want to I want to I want to stop us from getting this far ahead in politics. Right. I, okay. I hear what you're saying, I think, is true. Like if you imagine Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win a huge victory in 2020, it is yeah. very possible Republicans gained a bunch of seats in 2022. I don't I don't deny that at all. But Republicans are currently in charge. Yeah. Like, and they have no idea. Mitch McConnell would prefer. Right. Mitch McConnell would prefer not to be minority leader in January, even if assuming he would survive that, by the way, which I don't think people think he's done a great job for all that. Like he Mitch McConnell seems in many ways to be like a genius of obstruction and being in the minority, but does not seem well suited to majority governance. And I actually think that's becoming more. more, That's more like the thing I want to like focus on here. The Republican Party is in charge and it cannot govern. And in many ways, the whole thing that you're laying out here, Matt, I think is true. But what is remarkable about it? Is it here is a governing party, right? They control most of the American government that is acting like a minority party before it has lost the election. Like they are right. at, they are beginning. They I've heard this from a number of Republicans, like in many ways, they are looking like they they have now priced a Trump loss in. Most of them believe he will lose. They are worried that if they step out too far now, they're going to like be part of the parties. A lot of them think there's going to be another Tea Party in like 2021, um, mm-hmm. which maybe there will be, right? But we're like the party will like then go through another purge of people who like voted with the Democrats on big spending bills. So like they don't want to do that. The fact that the Republican Party seems to believe like the game is lost and like the thing to do to, to what you're saying, Matt, is position yourself for a comeback. Like mm-hmm. one, that is really profound about how bad their situation is. And two, it's a fucking total disaster for the country because I'm not going to try to do the math super quickly, but we got some time left where Republicans are going to be running things at least, right? Uh, August, September, October, November, December, January. That's six months. It's bad if we don't do anything effective for six months. What I think is interesting about this, though, is how unbothered 
conservatives are by like they're bothered by the prospect of losing the election obviously um they would rather win they they like to win but you know so they have no great ideas about how to deal with coronavirus i think you know some democratic people do better but obviously like nobody got into democratic party politics in order to deal with the coronavirus the reason democrats have ideas for how to deal with coronavirus is that people did get into democratic party politics to tackle issues related to uh, healthcare and various other concrete policy problems. So the party got very invested in people who could think about dealing with concrete policy problems. College professors of all stripes really like Democrats and, uh, you know, have expertise on a range of topics. So when a crisis emerges and it's like, shit, can we throw something together on this? Like Democrats totally can. They have like lots of capable technocrats. They know how to find experts. They respect expertise a lot, right? So like, you know, did we really remember that Anthony Fauci was an important infectious diseases expert? I don't know. I I didn't. But like that's it's something Democrats are into, like on a rank and file level and an elite level. Uh, but Republicans, I feel like, uh, with the exception of trying to make abortion illegal, are mostly motivated by concerns that are not fully inside the political domain, right? So, like, if forced to come up with something to say on healthcare, they will like reluctantly agree to do that. But they're not sitting around on their own, like autonomously worried about the state of the American healthcare system. They are worried about Tucker Carlson got very upset about being scolded about mispronouncing Kamala Harris's last name or first name. And I feel like that's like very authentic. Like that's what that's what worries Republicans, that people with weird names are going to come around and other people are going to get upset that you don't learn how to pronounce their weird names. And as somebody with a weird name myself, I'm familiar with this and I I try to have a relaxed attitude about it. But it's not it's not just like not what I would think of as a first order political issue, but like literally Congress cannot pass a law saying that nobody is allowed to get upset about mispronunciation of ethnic names. Like it's not what they do. Right. And it's convenient. Um, I, I listened to your um, your interview with um, Hacker and, and Pearson. I was listening the other day and, you know, they have an almost like conspiratorial account of this, but it's like. On the actual policy domain, Republicans are just trying to help very rich people, but that's obviously not a agenda you can take to the mass public. So they just talk about all this like other stuff, like semi-nonsense, things that don't have a lot to do with the legislative process, and it leaves them just not, not having people who are like interested in the idea of how to address public policy problems, right? And it's very, it really shows in a crisis, right? Trump's autopilot governance, it it worked almost surprisingly well for a little while, like better than I would have thought. But like, then eventually, like the road turns and like, now we're in the fucking ditch. One of the ways I've begun to read the, the earliest of the administration are, so Trump is disinterested in governance on most issues. He does get involved on immigration to some degree on trade. He has people in his uh, uh, administration who are competent enough and aligned with him enough to push his agenda there. But on most issues, he he checks out. And so what happened for a while in the Republican Party, as far as I can tell, is Trump was president, 
to use the Hacker and Pearson term, he was letting to meet the tweets, right? Sending his base to tweets. And the Congressional Republican Party just took whatever they already had on the shelf down off the shelf and sent it to him to sign when they could. So they did tax cuts. They tried to do Obamacare appeal and failed. They deregulated and like, you know, let, let people put more poison into streams and that kind of thing. But then when you needed to do some new policy thinking, right, when a problem came up that was complicated and different and you couldn't just take your plan off the shelf, to some degree, it, it just showed they had no capacity to do that. There was not enough alignment or process between the various stakeholder groups, particularly between Congress and the White House, to, to do it. So they have kept taking some things off the shelf, right? A payroll tax cut, a capital gains tax cut, indemnifying uh, corporations, like all kinds of things like that that were already on there. But in terms of like, how are we going to stop the coronavirus? Like nothing, like absolutely nothing. In terms of what are we going to do for all these people who are screwed now? Really, basically nothing, like somewhat less than the Democrats want to do, but maybe not zero has tended to be to, to be the answer. Everybody I've spoken to reporting this piece thinks that after Trump, there's going to be this like war in the party for its future between like you see it in Congress right now. There's like this wing of, say, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, like that that group of cons- like Tea Party conservative Republicans who don't want to spend anything and like they're attacking everything as like big government. And right. It's like it's like Reaganism never died. And then you have this sort of wing of like Rubio and Hawley and Cotton and to some degree Romney and, and some of others who want to go in like what's I would long call sort of the reformicon direction of like trying to do more for, for for people who are down and out, who see like Trump as being a corrective that they're now going to like define into an ideology that is conservative. But and the problem is, uh, or one problem is that because Donald Trump will not make a choice between those wings, there's total paralysis in actually having that fight. There is no view on either side of who Donald Trump will side with. Or even if he will side with somebody or he will just like bounce back and forth between attacking the two sides um, sequentially as something becomes unpopular or he sees a different Fox News segment. And so their ability to have this actual fight about where the Republican Party should go is totally paralyzed. Um, I, I was talking to Brian Riddell, who was he was uh, Senator Rob Portman's chief economist for six years. He's at the Manhattan Institute now. And he had this line that was, that was pretty uh, sharp where he said, you know, what happened here is the Democrats passed their bill two months ago. Republicans then took months to respond after Democrats set the terms of the debate. And the part of the issue, he said, is that Republicans are suffering from Trump exhaustion and they feel the word emasculated keeps coming to mind. A lot of the Republicans I talked to seem almost emasculated by the White House. The president will do what he's going to do. Any strategy they come up with will be undermined tomorrow by a tweet. Their fate is tied to a president they can't control or even influence. So all they can do is push for changes on the edges and hope for the best. Um, that's why Congress seems so weak that he won't play along with their strategies. And like that on the one hand is a huge failure of leadership on Mitch McConnell's part because Trump is weak in a different way and probably would take something if they sent it to him. But nevertheless, like it just seems like there's a total collision right now between um, a party that doesn't know what it wants and a president who will not choose a direction to settle that fight but is nevertheless popular enough among the base, he's still at 91% among Republicans, that no Republicans want to be seen crossing him. And so like what you get there is total paralysis and a kind of like, like a like we're just going to ride this out. It's probably going to be bad. And on the other side, we can fight over what the party should be once Donald Trump is not standing in the way of there being a resolution. But here's where I started to get into the futurism, because like 
I think some of the um, more grounded, policy-oriented people in the conservative movement will say to me that, like, this fight is coming, right? That, like, when Trump is off the stage, like, then we're going to have it out. And I'm like, we're sharpening our tools, you know, and and then it's going to happen. And I don't think it is going to happen. Like, I think that there will be a... Like you, you, you mentioned reformacons, right? And like that was a thing um, that existed. I mean, they, they're real people. I have met the reformacons. Uh, some of them I, I like quite a lot. Uh, but there was, as a phenomenon, it was largely a media thing, right? Like it was interesting to write about the battle of ideas taking place inside conservative politics, and so there was a lot of coverage of it. But in a way, it it just it amounted to not that much because it's not what the Republican Party is oriented toward, not just toward their specific solutions, but to the whole idea of like taking that seriously. Right. So like Tom Cotton is a is an ambitious guy, a smart guy. He's uh, I think he probably doesn't have the charisma to be president, but he's he's going for it. Right. He's like he's he's trying to be be a leader. And you look at his trajectory over the past few months, and it starts with, okay, he's going to say we should dispatch troops uh, into American cities to stop riots, right? And so he does that op-ed for the New York Times. There's this whole he would cry about it. James Bennett gets fired. And so then Cotton could pivot from that to like really be like the law and order guy who comes out with like proposal after proposal like the uh the, the murder rate has gone up uh like a lot in 2020 a thing tom cotton could be talking about is his ideas for getting it down but instead what he pivoted to after that was some kind of bill to like make cancel culture illegal on campus and uh he got mad about the 1619 project which came out like a like a year ago and and he didn't get mad about it in the sense of like doing four tweets about why he disagrees or like recommending Bernard Balin's book uh who he just passed away recently and like here's a different interpretation there's like a lot of ways you could express disagreement with some of those essays he wrote like a law like an act of congress whose point was to say that this magazine special feature from a year ago was bad and like there's a fucking 12% unemployment thousands of people are dying every day in a pandemic but like that's what he's what he's doing and that's like where it's like authentically where conservatives are i think is like they want to argue with left-wing college professors and it's just not conducive to saying like to have a policy argument, you have to decide that the stakes in the policy dispute are actually like worth getting mad about and then worth trying to find your way to a compromise to on. And it's like it's very painful. Like Democrats have done so much like so much like blood, sweat and tears on health policy for like generations with like people getting upset and then people making up again and trying to find compromises and like. Republicans, I think, don't care enough about concrete public policy problems to bother putting in that kind of work. Yeah, I think there's some, I mean, there's clearly something to that. On some level, like, there's no great answer to this, but I will just say, like, as like my final point here, that the puzzle of this is not that, like, the GOP's heart 
is not in coming up with economic support bills. I mean, somebody told me, well, writing this piece, like the Democrats were born to come up with multi-trillion dollar stimulus. It's like that is what they get into politics to do. This is always going to be a, a tough lift for Republicans. Like it's not where they like to be. Public health is not their issue. Just like anything where you need massive government effort moving across and coordinating across many, many, many different agencies. Uh, you know, like this is this is a tough issue for them given the the reasons many of them got into politics. That said, we normally think of politicians as re- as self-interested to their own political interest and that that is a disciplining function of our electoral system that faced with the possibility of a huge wipeout you will do what you need to do to avoid that and that is a good thing right that is part of like how we keep a system that makes some sense and 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 keep people interested in governance as opposed to just going viral and and being on fox news and People will always say, like, Mitch McConnell, the guy's just a cynic, right? That was Alec McGillis's, the title of his, like, mini bio of McConnell, the cynic. All he wants to do is win power, hold power, and get more power. And here, he's not doing anything that seems likely to get him in any of those directions. And so it just really speaks, I think, to the Republican Party just isn't a governance institution at this point or anymore. Um, it was a huge disaster last time they had a president in power with George W. Bush. That's been a little retconned. But by the time he was leaving office, I mean, he was in the 20s, um, his approval rating. Like he looked, he was in much worse shape in many ways than Trump is right now. And now you put in another problem president, it's another disaster and they have no idea what to do. And just everything I think you say is true and it won't necessarily stop them um, from winning elections in the future because grievance politics are powerful. But the unbelievably fundamental weakness of the Republican Party is that every time they get power, they cause a disaster. And we will see what happens in 2020, but that like creates a vulnerability for them to lose it. Like American geography is stacked in their direction. Like they come into this with like a like a power up. And they keep losing power, not because they didn't win it and have the opportunity to, to govern, but because when they do govern, it's either a disaster because of what they do or a disaster because of what they don't do. Like the demographic tilt of the country is not going to keep them alive for that long. Like it is going away, um, not super rapidly, but, you know, Texas is in play. If Texas becomes in play, if Georgia becomes in play, like this begins to change really fast. And so it's a weakness of our system right now that you have a party that can win power but can't govern, but also just like a thing to, to really know that. You know, I think during the Obama era, the theory was Republicans were acting the way they were from the minority because they weren't responsible for the condition of the country if their obstructionism and like lack of theory of how to respond to the financial crisis failed to produce a recovery. Like Barack Obama was going to take the blame for that. And he did um, in many cases. Now they are in charge. They're taking the blame and they have nothing more. Like they, they, they do not act with more sense of responsibility or more sense of urgency and agency. And that may be distinct to Donald Trump. Like if we were in Mitt Romney's second term, I do believe things would be different. If we're in Marco Rubio's first term, I think things would look different. But faced with Donald Trump, like the congressional party does not have the strength to do anything different, even as they face the prospect of losing a tremendous amount of power in the fall. This is why I mean, I think you and I were both uh, like like hipster fans of the early phase of the Pete Buttigieg presidential campaign that was like very focused on political process type stuff. And I don't think that's at all what a Biden administration is going to prioritize. But I wish that they would, because 
If I think about America, there are discrete policy problems. But one thing we've seen is that it's very hard to like solve problems with like an airplane with only one wing. You know, like if you pass an Affordable Care Act and then years and years later, Republicans aren't trying to like put a more free market spin on it or somehow tweak it to address like the concerns of people who think contraceptives are against God, but they're like trying to just like trash it and sabotage everything. It doesn't it doesn't work. And the only way to get out of that, right, would be if you have no filibuster, if D.C. and Puerto Rico are states, if you have strict anti-gerrymandering rules in the House, if you forestall this like judicial system stronghold from which policies can be sabotaged, then Republicans need to run every race the way Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker run, which like works, right? It's like the the Republican Party, uh, when pressed to it, because every state in America contains rich businessmen, and those rich businessmen would prefer to see Republicans run the state like somehow or other. And they and they find ways to make it happen when they're like pressed to it. And it normally involves putting forward candidates who seem like they know what they're talking about and who I, I don't know what they like. <laughs> bother to put in the work to try to do a good job. But it's like too easy. Like you said, Republicans have have a power up, but it's like, it's like if you only ever play the game on easy mode, then anytime something goes wrong, it's like you have no idea what to do. And you have to, we have to like raise the bar for what it takes for Republicans to win an election so that they have to put in some more work, like, like do some reps, like figure out, like, like what are we doing here? Because this whole thing where like Trump can just like tweet and like say he doesn't like Mexicans and get 46% of the vote. And then everyone's like, well, I guess that's the soul of real America. It's very, it's like it's like intellectually deadening and where it's the the consequences are like very literally lethal. I guess it's a good place to end. All right. Uh, I'm feeling cranky today uh, because, frankly, there are thousands and thousands of weeds listeners who have not yet pre-ordered my book, One Billion Americans, coming out September 15th. But you really should uh, tweet about it. You'll get uh, to enter the lottery to pick a weeds white paper. So do it. It's going to be awesome. Um, thank you, Ezra. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>